Welcome to the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Britt Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. We have two posts to talk about today, along with an author interview. The first post is acute acalculus cholecystitis, and the second is on mastitis and breast abscess. Our third post will look at LV aneurysm on ECG from Rachel Bridwell. Our first post today is on acute acalculus cholecystitis, which is gallbladder inflammation without gallstones. This accounts for approximately 5-10% to of cases of acute cholecystitis and has an incidence of 0.2-0.4% to in critically ill patients. This is most common in critically ill patients in the ICU, such as those with polytrauma, massive burns, cardiac surgery, abdominal vascular surgeries, immunocompromise, septic, and prolonged TPN administration but there have been some data suggesting it is diagnosed in outpatients without trauma or another inciting illness. We think the underlying pathophysiology is gallbladder ischemia from hypoperfusion. There are a bunch of other risk factors discussed in the post in Table 1, but beyond critically ill patients, think of this in those with atherosclerotic heart disease. The most common findings on history and exam include right upper quadrant pain, fever, and leukocytosis. Less common findings include nausea, vomiting, biliary colic, elevated liver function tests, alkaline phosphatase, and total bilirubin. When it comes to imaging, ultrasound is going to be your first choice for imaging, but keep in mind that sensitivities range from 30 to 92% and specificities from 89 to 100%. The proposed diagnostic triad of acute acalculus cholecystitis is a gallbladder wall thickness greater than 3.5 millimeters, biliary sludge, and gallbladder hydrops defined as gallbladder distension greater than 5 centimeters in the transverse plane or greater than 8 centimeters in the longitudinal plane. If you're suspicious but ultrasound is negative, move to CT, which may show gallbladder wall thickening or nodularity, poor definition of gallbladder liver interface, and pericholecystic fluid. Another imaging modality is the HIDASCAN, but unfortunately ultrasound CT and HIDASCAN don't have 100% sensitivity and laparoscopy is recommended by the Society of American Gastroenterological and Endoscopic Surgeons if you think this is still a potential diagnosis. Treatment focuses on fluid resuscitation, systemic IV antibiotics, and surgical therapy. Antibiotic regimens should provide gram-negative coverage. In the toxic-appearing patient who has previously received antibiotics, vancomycin is utilized to treat enterococcal infection. Prognosis is poor, with mortality rates above 60%. Most patients will require ICU level of admission. Our next post is on mastitis and breast abscess, something we see a fair amount in the ED, but unfortunately, there isn't much FOMED on this. Mastitis is an inflammation of the breast parenchymal tissue and can be broken down into two types mastitis in the setting of lactation and mastitis not related to lactation. TB and sarcoidosis are also associated with mastitis. Mastitis typically presents with a red, swollen, warm, and painful tissue in one specific area, and it might cause flu-like symptoms such as fever, body aches, and fatigue. A breast abscess is a collection of pus in the breast tissue and often occurs as a complication of mastitis. Mastitis occurs in 1-24% to of lactating women, and breast abscesses occur in 5-11% to of lactating women who develop infectious mastitis. Keep in mind that mastitis is a clinical diagnosis. It's important to differentiate mastitis in the non-lactating female from inflammatory breast cancer, which is a rare form of breast cancer that can present similarly to mastitis with diffuse erythema and edema of the breast tissue. Mastitis, however, generally causes a fever and responds to antibiotics, differentiating it from inflammatory breast cancer. Treatment of mastitis includes counseling, 
effective milk removal, antibiotics, and symptomatic treatment. Patients need to be reassured that they continue to breastfeed from the affected breast, that it will not affect the baby, and that it will help the breast to recover. Symptomatic treatment includes non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications and cold compresses. Antibiotics should cover Staphylococcus aureus. First-line antibiotics are Dicloxacin or Cephalexin. If patients do not respond to initial treatment, MRSA should be considered, and antibiotics should include Bactrim or Clindamycin. Also, make sure to counsel patients on the importance of milk removal, which includes frequent breastfeeding and, in some cases, using hand expression or pumping. Breast abscess can occur with mastitis, or an abscess can develop five days to four weeks after a patient has developed mastitis. Symptoms include inflammation of breast tissue with fever, a palpable mass that is tender and fluctuant, and a fluid collection demonstrated on ultrasound. Other things to consider for breast abscess in lactating women include a plugged duct without systemic symptoms, galactoseal, which is a cystic, non-tender mass, and inflammatory breast cancer, which might have skin thickening and erythema. Treatment includes fine needle aspiration under direct visualization, usually by a breast radiologist. Abscesses that are larger than 5 centimeters have a large volume of aspirated pus on needle aspiration or have a significant delay in treatment are risk factors for failure of needle aspiration and may require surgical incision and drainage. In many centers, you may not have access to these resources. If you are comfortable with ultrasound-guided needle aspiration, consider performing on those with uncomplicated small abscesses, generally less than 3 centimeters, that aren't too deep and where there is no immediate follow-up available. Ideally, patients with abscesses should be referred to a breast radiologist or breast surgeon for abscess drainage while the emergency room physician starts them on antibiotics. Our next post focuses on LV aneurysms and the ECG. We're joined by Rachel Bridwell, the primary author of this post. Rachel, this is a tough diagnosis, and most of these ECGs in retrospect are consistent with LV aneurysm. But in the heat of the moment, is it wrong to activate your STEMI team? Ideally, these folks should not result in a STEMI activation. The classic progression of signs of STEMI on ECG include hypercute T waves, ST segment elevation, Q waves, and T wave inversion. ST segment elevation resolution and the persistence of Q waves and normalization of the T waves. But it can be difficult to differentiate STEMI and LV aneurysm. The post says that persistent ST elevation after STEMI can signify an LV aneurysm and that well-formed Q waves, absence of large or upright T waves, lack of reciprocal changes, or dynamic ST changes suggest an LV aneurysm. Are there any rules available to help you differentiate STEMI and LV aneurysm? We do have two rules that help us differentiate these two life-threatening but very different entities. So rule number one is that if the sum of T-wave amplitudes in V1 and V4 divided by the sum of the QRS and amplitudes of lead 1, V1, and V4 is greater than 0.22, then the acute ST-segment elevation MI is predicted. Rule number two states, if any one lead V1 through V4 has T-wave amplitude to QRS ratio greater than 0.36, then a STEMI is also predicted, whereas a T-wave to QRS ratio of less than 0.36 in all precordial leads, so V1 through V4, is more suggestive of an LV aneurysm. What should we do in the ED when we're thinking LV aneurysm? The first crucial step is to acquire an old ECG for these people to confirm the previous diagnosis. Often a point-of-care ultrasound can help show you the aneurysms, but these people definitely require admission. LV aneurysms have an associated poor prognosis with increased cardiac and thromboembolic complications. These patients often have heart failure, ventricular arrhythmias, and strokes. 
The balloon segment is a nidus for a thrombus formation, and you launch it directly into the systemic circulation. So anticoagulation should be considered during these admissions. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Rachel. We really appreciate it, and I'm sure we'll have you back. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.